If you're anything like me, you spent your childhood assuming that one day you'd meet your Prince Charming. You'd get married, you'd have a nice house in the suburbs, a dog, a career, and a couple of kids. It never crossed your mind that Prince Charming wouldn't come along, or that tragically you'd lose him before his time, or that your marriage wouldn't work out, or even that your biological clock would have other ideas. Or maybe you never really wanted that sort of happily ever after. Maybe you never wanted a man, but you did know you always wanted children. We're living in an age where for the first time, women can embrace motherhood on their own terms. They no longer have to put their lives on hold waiting for the right man, or settling for someone who they know isn't right for them, just so they can become a mother. More women than ever before are embarking on the journey to become what's known as a solo mother by choice. And while for a lot of us it doesn't feel like a choice, but more a necessity, the bottom line is there are now options for you to be able to fulfill your dreams of motherhood if the traditional route isn't playing out as expected. The No Need for Prince Charming podcast will share stories of Australian women who have successfully become solo mothers by choice. They each have a unique story as to why they decided to pursue motherhood in this way and the journey they had to go through to make this dream a reality. The hope is that by sharing these stories, you'll have the knowledge and the confidence to embark on this amazing journey yourself if you determine it's the right one for you. In the words of Walt Disney, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. All you need is faith, trust, and a little bit of pixie dust. So welcome to today's episode, Mel. I'd love to start by learning a little bit more about who you were before you decided to become a mum. Um, so before I decided to become a mum, I um, was a teacher. Uh, I am a teacher, a primary school teacher. Um, and uh, I suppose in my, all the way through my 20s, um, that was what dominated most of my life. I've never really been a big data um, and I've never really, I'd never really felt like I was missing out on anything by not dating. Um, and then... Yeah, I suppose I got to the end of my 20s, late 20s, and um, even though I'd sort of promised myself that becoming a solo mum would be something that I might look at at 35 if I hadn't found a life partner, Mm -hmm. I sort of hit 29 and found myself going, my my sort of like, you know, that internal instinct has a different idea of its own. And um, yeah, I sort of went maybe the times now when I started sort of playing with that idea at about 29, just before I turned 30. Um, yeah, now I'm 32 and with a five-month-old. Wow. <laughs> and we might hear him gurgling away in the background there, decided he wasn't, don't want to go to sleep tonight. So you decided at 29, did you tell many people what you were thinking? Um. I sat with it for a good few months, actually. It was 2020, um, so obviously, like, COVID and all of that, and I had to really sit with it and make sure that it wasn't just cabin fever, I suppose, (laughs) like, from having been inside and not having very much to do and was I just a bit... Maybe I should have a baby then. (laughs) Let's fill my life with a baby. And so I had to sit with it for a good few months. And the first few times that I told people... I cried. So I told my sister and I cried and I told my um, some really good friends of mine and I cried and then I finally worked myself up to telling my mum and then my dad. And I think I just, I think I was so concerned about what the reaction would be. Hmm. Um, you know, the pe- people around me know me well enough to know that um, I was always going to be a mum. And I'd always sort of talked about being 35 and, and deciding to do this. Um, but 
Um, I was a bit, I think my biggest concern was that they were going to say, oh, are you sure? Like, are you sure that now is the right time? You're still pretty young. What if you meet someone? But like I said, I'd never been really interested in having a partner and having a boyfriend or, you know, husband or anything like that. So, um, and then, and their reactions were nothing like that, but they were like, no, that's, that's fine. That totally makes sense for you and who you are. And yeah, you know, they were amazing. We get stuck in our own head a little bit about it. I think there's a lot of negativity that we've seen in the public, but it's not actually based on anything that we assume is going to be the same. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, um, yeah, you're right. And there's like a lot of stigma around being single or solo and, you know, what that means and what you can provide for your kids. And obviously those are concerns that you carry with yourself as well, Um, but not necessarily things that other people think about you as an individual. I think the narrative's changing a bit as more people embark yeah. on this journey as well. And it's, Absolutely. It's, yeah. I think it's based on some bad 80s American sitcoms, to be honest. Absolutely. And some <laughs> really, really old research. <laughs> Very old research. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone was supportive, which is amazing. And what did you yeah. go through to get pregnant? Um, so I was pretty determined that I wanted to do IUI um, mm-hmm. rather than going straight to IVF because... I didn't believe that there was any reason why I couldn't get pregnant. Um, I sort of had age on my side. And when I had all of those initial tests done, um, my egg reserves looked really good. And so I was like, I really wanted to do IUI. Um, But in the process of doing that, I had a tubal patency test, they call it, just to make sure that your tubes are, like your fallopian tubes are clear and um, stuck up with yeah it's a dye thing contrast thing that they inject but they did sort of an all-round scan at the same time and they found that I had cysts on each ovary so not polycystic ovary syndrome but just like um the really cool cysts with like teeth and hair and stuff those oh, really? of, yeah <laughs> dermoid like, cysts so yeah I feel yeah. like I'm so on Grey's found... Anatomy or something <laughs> Um, so they found that I had these cysts, one on each ovary, and they couldn't tell whether my ovaries were functional behind the cysts. Wow. Okay. Um, and so, and when I spoke to my fertility specialist, um, she said that she wanted to have them operated on before I started treatment. Um, so Obviously, with it being by that point, it was 2021, but we were still pretty heavily in COVID times and um, we were in, the hospitals were in code brown. So there was no elective surgery and it sucked that this was considered elective. I couldn't think of anything less elective, but mm. it was an elective surgery. And it's, it's not life-threatening, so therefore it's elective. Exactly, wow. exactly, yeah. So, um, yeah, so... I had to wait and I waited and waited. Um, and it was last year, 2022, June in the end. Wow. So it was scheduled for April, but then I got COVID <laughs> the week that I was meant to be having surgery. So then I ended up having to wait until June. Um, and yeah, it, the, the surgery was fine. Um they found endometriosis at the same time, so severe endometriosis, but they treated that while they were in there doing amongst everything else. Um, and it was just a, um, 
like a keyhole surgery. So the recovery time was pretty short. Um, and did you have any idea before that surgery that you had endo or anything else going on? Um, I did not. I did not. And in hindsight, um, I maybe I should have. <laughs> um, I think, you know, we we sort of tend to just put up with whatever pain we've always had during our periods and during our cycles because that's just our normal. Mm. Um, but then having, you know, speak, speaking to my GP when I had this diagnosis and the um, fertility specialist and stuff, they were, it was kind of like maybe that level of discomfort isn't normal. So, yeah, <laughs> new things that you learn about your body. Knowing, though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. You have nothing to compare it to. You just go, this is what my body does. And anyway, so they treated that while they were in there. Um, because I wanted to do IUI, when I contacted Monash IVF, they said that I would probably need to do treatment in Queensland. So I'm Victoria-based but they wanted me to do treatment in Queensland because in Victoria we can't access international donors and very few of the Victorian donors that they had on their books were eligible for IUI. Oh, really? Um, they're very, they're IVF. So IVF, obviously, they don't need to be as strong swimmers. Yeah. Um, um, but for IUI, they actually need to be even stronger than sort of just normal, natural intercourse kind of they've got to really be strong um and you were probably at the time where there was quite a a shortage in general anyway a shortage anyway yeah so um they said that the best chance that I would have of using of doing IUI would be to go to Queensland and use an international donor so my donor is actually from Seattle sperm bank yeah um and that then involved sort of a delicate dance. My fertility specialist really, really wanted me to go to IVF. She was like the, you know, the most straightforward way of doing this will be if we already have the eggs and all we've got to do is transfer it at the right time. It'll be easier. It'll be less complicated. I was really determined that I wanted to do IUI. I was like, this is, yeah. I And I had three lots of um, this donor's sperm. And so my plan was two IUIs and if, if the first two aren't successful, then the third, I would go to IVF. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did um, a lot of that, that pre-stuff. I was actually helped by COVID in some ways because they were able to do telehealth and all of that, which a lot of places weren't very open to prior to COVID. And then suddenly COVID happened and I could do like the uh, the um the pre um treatment counseling and the um and meet with my specialist on zoom and so that was actually really good in a way otherwise you'd um, be spending a lot of time in queensland wouldn't you yeah, yeah. <laughs> which you couldn't couldn't you couldn't travel between borders you know everything was locked up so um that <laughs> was kind of good um and yeah so then when i actually so it was about i think it ended up being like 2 months later after my surgery that I did my first round of fertility treatment so August last year um and um I had I had a scan on the Monday to see like how many like whether I had a mature follicle um whether I was likely to ovulate and the first time I went up my mum 
came with me um, and we ended up having a week in Queensland, which sounds like a bit of a treat, but in amongst all of that was like a blood test every day and like another ultrasound while I was up there to see where I was at. And um, so it was a completely unmedicated cycle, um, but the first one was unsuccessful. So um, then I went up, sort of, my aim was always to have two before the end of 2022, two lots of treatment if I could. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went back up. I can't remember now whether it was the next cycle or even the one after that. It must have just been the next cycle. Um, And I went back up on my own. And again, it was the same kind of thing. Like I'd had scans down here and then they'd said, come up, but you're still a few days away from that hormonal surge. Um, And, yeah, um, that second one is Theo. Oh, wow. (laughs) The second, yeah, the second IUI was the successful one. So, um, I think I sort of lived a lot of 2022 by the mantra of one day you're going to be really, really grateful that it didn't happen now. Yeah. Because if if it had have happened earlier, it wouldn't be Theo. It would be some other kind, other, other baby that it was. And I, pro- I would have loved them, but I'm so grateful that it's Theo and how amazing he is. And, you know, um, so the timing of it was really perfect even though at times it was frustrating and sad and (laughs) yeah did you go into it thinking you'd want more than one child I always knew that it was a really strong possibility that I would want um two Mm -hmm. um I have a sister who um is my absolute best friend And so I would love that for Theo to have a sibling that, you know, I'm sure that at times they might not be best friends growing up. Um, Yeah, so almost as soon as Theo was born, I contacted Monash IVF um, to see whether they could secure more of the same donor for Mm -hmm. us. And I've now got three lots of the same donor available to use again in the future. So so I guess if you go again, you can do another couple of IUIs. If it doesn't work, you've still got backup to do. Yeah, exactly. So my plan would probably be much the same whenever the timing's right for that. Um, yeah, yeah. It's great that you got access to it so easily. I yeah. A lot so of they said with the international and getting more. So that's brilliant. Oh look, I made it, I made it sound probably a bit bit easy. I've contacted them and they said, oh, we haven't got any more of that that, that donor. Um, let, let us contact Seattle Sperm Bank and see if they've got more. Seattle Sperm Bank didn't, but at the same time as I'd asked, they were doing an audit and asking families whether they still wanted to reserve the sperm. And so coincidentally, very luckily, um, obviously one or two families that had the same donor in reserve sort of um, gave it back to the clinic and they were able to, able to move it to me so that's lucky really lucky yeah and what were you looking for when you chose your donor I think basically what I was looking for in a donor was so um my family has a bit of a history of um hearing loss okay and so I know how challenging that can be on someone so I was kind of like I think that was something that I was conscious of when I was looking at medical histories um and 
I was sort of looking at the photos, looking for someone that kind of looked like me as a kid. Yeah. Because I was like, if they look kind of like me, then my baby might look like me. And then, yeah, it was important to me that they had, that that they were able to recognise themselves in their family. I think that was the main thing. Um, someone who had a good reason for donating, you know, someone who had some good thoughts around why they donated. So Theo's only five months old. How did you yeah. find coming home with a newborn? Was it what you expected? Um, so I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know how that was all going to play out. Um, I've had a cesarean, which I suppose at the time wasn't exactly what I planned, but it was a it was a planned cesarean in the end. So I was diagnosed with um pregnancy induced hypertension and Ooh. at 38 weeks and so um I had like a chronic headache for like a week before that and um he'd had a flip from being head down to sideways and they were like oh look probably the safest thing for us to do is to have a cesarean sooner rather than later so um with that, I suppose added another element of I don't quite know how going home is going to go. Yeah. Um, but I was so lucky um, that my mum and my sister had perhaps thought about it a little bit more than I had <laughs> and had sort of teed up between them that for like the first week there was always someone with me. Um, and so I wasn't... I wasn't on my own that first week at any point they stayed overnight or, you know, um, and it was really comforting to know that they were just there. Yeah. But I feel like, I feel like it just sort of clicked in quite naturally. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been really lucky since day one. I mean, tonight's a bit of an exception to that, but overall he's been such a good sleeper that I haven't, like I haven't suffered with sleep deprivation to the point where I've been like, you know, feeling stressed or, um, yeah, it's, it, the transition has just felt like the most natural thing in the entire world. Um, like why didn't I do this sooner? That kind of feeling. <laughs> yeah. Probably wouldn't have felt like that if you'd done it sooner. No, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think like we'll talk saying, you know, those early days feel long and short. So every week, you know, when they're you're clicking over to the next week and you're like, oh, he's three weeks old and he's four weeks old, you can't believe that it's happening so quickly. And yet in those early weeks when you're having trouble, like I had trouble breastfeeding and um, that felt that, and even looking back now, that felt like such a long time that I was battling through that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's such a weird time to look back on. Um, it's It was magical and hard and <laughs> amazing and really emotional, really emotional, like yeah. it, just lots of tears, happy tears, frustrated tears, sad tears, you know, you just, <laughs> yeah. Definitely the best thing you've ever done there. Absolutely, absolutely. And you're just obviously starting to find your feet with mother's group and things like that. How are you finding yeah. that as a solo mum? Again, like the, the reaction from all of them, like there's not been any level of like, 
negativity or like you know any sense of like that I'm somehow any different from them mm-hmm. um they ask me questions about it and they go like you know oh when um how do you go like overnight when when it's just you on your own um and it's actually you know and then they t- they talk about their partners and some of them have even talked about mother-in-laws and that kind of thing and in so many ways I have go gosh I'm so lucky that I don't have to deal with any of those things <laughs> like I haven't got to worry about um you know, compromising with anyone other than me and Theo, you know, that's it. That's all we have to do. That's all we have to look after. Um, You know, if I don't have, you know, dinner on the table at exactly 6.30, the only person that impacts is me. Mm -hmm. Um, If I want to have sort of my main meal at lunchtime and then sort of some snacks for dinner at dinner time, that only impacts me. I haven't got to sort of take anyone else into the equation with me. And um, yeah, so we, we do, we talk about that kind of thing mm-hmm. at mother's group and how, just how our days run a bit differently. Um, but yeah, it's been amazing. They're really all really lovely and they're amazing support, you know, to have someone else to bounce off when, when you're on your own and you don't have someone to sort of say, Oh, my baby's doing this. And what do you think? And to have someone else to sort of, share that those thoughts and feelings with is is really nice have you made any connections or relationships with anyone in the solo mum community to have that with you not yet it's definitely I I wish I had done it earlier so like when I was looking at becoming a solo mum yeah I wish I had started looking at that perhaps when I was pregnant or like you know although when I was pregnant I was so exhausted I couldn't have done anything (laughs) um so, but yeah, maybe in, you know, if I'd had my time again, I would have made those connections. Because like when you have a newborn um, and even now, like I'm just sort of starting to feel like, oh, I've got the headspace to to start doing those things. But it would be, would have been nice to have had that from day dot rather than, you know, five months in or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And have you given any thought to if you'd like any sort of relationship with the donor or donor siblings in the future? Um, yes, I've thought about it and I don't quite know what my answer is yet. <laughs> I, I think about it a lot, but I don't know what my answer is yet. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of different schools of thought. Like there's the be led by your child kind of thoughts. Mm-hmm. And then there's the, the earlier that they just know any donor siblings the the better because then they it's just part of their you know their social circle and it doesn't it's not different you know they don't have to sort of take that on board as they get older and they you know it's just part of their it's always been part of their identity I suppose so um yeah and then in terms of the donor sorry in terms of the donor I perhaps the one thing that I wish I'd thought about sooner okay and earlier is the fact that he's an international donor um and whether that has an impact on 
whether he's in more in more interested or less interested than an Australian donor might be in having that relationship in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to. I think that would be amazing for for Theo, um, and and part of the reason that I want my donor to be the same if I have another child is. Um, part of the reason I want to have the same donor for any future children is because I think it's really important for them to have a shared experience, whatever that relationship is built. You know, if he doesn't want a relationship with them, he doesn't want a relationship with either of them, but it's not something that becomes a point of contention between the two siblings that Mm -hmm. one of them has a donor that wants to build this relationship and one of them has a donor that's not so interested. Do you know what I mean? Like, so it's just, um, that's really, really important to me. So uh, if if I wasn't able to conceive with the same donor, I would have to think long and hard about whether I had a sibling for him at all. Yeah, so probably really lucky if you do do international to get onto it really quickly afterwards. Yes, if you want more. absolutely. Yeah, I, um, I gave them, I made a frantic phone call to them couple of weeks ago because I was I was when all um was it you who posted about another um solo mum whose donor had withdrawn from the program wasn't me but I know who you mean yeah yeah um and I just sort of had this panicked thought of because the the Queensland laws are really quite different I think that if you have an embryo in Queensland it belongs to you like it's not even if the donor withdraws it's still your embryo. And so I was like, should I be making embryos to like really lock this in? <laughs> um, but yeah, she, she said that they've never had an international donor withdraw consent from future siblings. So um, obviously that doesn't mean never ever that, you know, this he might be the first one, but um, I'm sort of willing to hedge my bets a little bit more based on that. Yeah, quite a different situation with international as well, isn't it? So yeah. I, my understanding is they still have to be ID release at 18, like all Australian yes, donors. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know yeah. if there's limitations to how many families they can create? Um, so every, the, the, all of the rules have to, because he's a queen, like they've, the sperm's been brought into Queensland, all of the laws they have to adhere to have to adhere to Australia laws. Mm-hmm but they can only control what happens in Australia. So I don't I don't know what the American laws are, but he'll be able to donate to as many families as he's legally allowed to in America. Mm-hmm. And then in Queensland, I think from memory, it's 10 families or five families, whereas I think Victoria, it's donated to particular women. I think so, Victoria, it's 10 families. 10, is it 10 families? Oh, when often I'll... they'll hold one allocation for the donor because okay. if the donor had a family, that would be one of the 10. Yes, that's right, yeah. And I think maybe when I was doing, maybe it's a different state or maybe it was an old law, but it used to be that in Victoria they don't, like it was a number of women allocation, which meant that anyone in a lesbian relationship or, you know, um would might take up two allocations if both of them wanted to carry a pregnancy right. whereas yeah. Queensland's very family based so anyway i think that they they've got 10 families so it sounds like it's much the same as victoria um and i believe that that's across australia not just in queensland so right. seattle sperm bank also have relationships with people like some clinics in perth and stuff so um he'd only be able to 
have 10 across Australia. So he might good. have donor brothers and sisters in different states, not just in Queensland. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, again, like I said, I, I, something that I think about a lot, but I haven't really investigated how to go about finding those siblings. So that's probably the next thought to have is if we were doing that how would we even start <laughs> yeah I think you can probably do a family audit potentially through Seattle Sperm Bank but then whether yeah. there's a connection because I know I've heard of some I don't know if it's Seattle Sperm Bank or elsewhere that have like Facebook groups associated with the donor number and they facilitate those connections oh okay I'll have to look into that that sounds good if there's some a way of doing it yeah don't quote me like that. <laughs> yeah <laughs> There's definitely other people that have used Seattle Sperm Bank that I think have made yeah. connections, so there'll be somewhere. Yes. Yes. You can always put a question out. Yeah, I'll tap into, like, I know that I sort of know a few people that have used Seattle as well, so I might tap into those people and go, how did you find, you know, <laughs> what did you do? <laughs> yeah. And if there's anyone just starting out on this journey, what advice do you think you'd give them, given yours is still quite quite new, so hopefully fresh in your mind? Um. So people planning to become solo mums I would say um don't let age be a factor mm-hmm. like if you feel that you're ready and you're in a financial position to do it and an emotional position to do it and you've got the support around you don't wait until like a magic number like I thought I was going to <laughs> um if you're pregnant my advice would be decide who your people are and let them know your, that, that they're your people. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I was at a higher risk of like pro- postpartum anxiety and stuff because I've had a history of mental, um, mental illness mm-hmm. and I've been really, really lucky because I haven't had any of that, but I knew that there was a really good chance. And so while I was pregnant, I said to some people, you know, I started off with like a, you know, if I, if you think I'm withdrawing, don't let me withdraw. If you feel like I'm pulling away, don't let me pull away. And then to people that were really close, I sort of said, can you let me know? if you think I'm putting on a brave face or if you think I'm not coping. And I think giving people permission to have that conversation with you Mm. stops them from worrying about how you're going to take it if they need to. Do you know what I mean? And it also lets them know I'm seeing you as a really important person right now and I need you. And then they, like, it sort of fosters an even deeper connection with those people that are already your people because you're sort of putting that trust back in them and stuff. So I would say find your people and let them know that they're your people. (laughs) Even being self-aware enough to know that, hey, potentially there's going to be an issue and talking about it beforehand would give people so much more permission to call you out if they're seeing something and they'll be looking out for it that they might not have even noticed had you not had that conversation as well. Because it's easy to just say, oh, she's just adjusting to mum life and not think it could be something deeper. And if you do have a history of it as well, that's really great advice. Oh, and my advice, if you're just about to have a baby or if you've had your baby, I would say celebrate every moment. Don't wait for the milestone baby book moments. Um, celebrate everything that happens, even if it seems like a really weird thing to celebrate. So um, like I said, I had trouble breastfeeding early on. And so, like, my celebration was 
um, like the first time that he latched using a nipple shield. Like you just have to celebrate every tiny little thing that happens. And yeah. And take Soak it lots up. of videos because that's the stuff yeah. you want to look back on. And photo just is not the same. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you think it's changed you as a woman becoming a mum? Um, I think I have a far better perspective on what's important, what's not important. Mm. Um, yeah, it really, it really changes how you look at all parts of your life and things that you used to hold on to you let go of because you realise really quickly it's not important compared to what's right in front of you. Um, So I think that's probably the biggest thing. I think I'm more willing to be vulnerable with people and just sort of, you know, yeah, tell them what what I really need from them and working on some more honest and open communication because at the end of the day, He hasn't got a voice at the moment, you know, and so he needs me to be his voice and to advocate for what he needs. Um, So, yeah, I'm probably being a bit braver with what I, how I, you know, talk to people and ask people for what I need rather than trying to make them feel happy all the time. It's like, well, this is actually more important than whether you like it or not. Does that make sense? I don't want to sound like I'm being really heartless, but (laughs) just... Your mama bear is coming out. That's all. Yeah. <laughs> and what are you most looking forward to as Theo grows up and the two of you? I'm looking, I don't know. I look forward to really big things like being able to take him on holidays and all of those things. But I actually just really look forward to like the little mundane things. I messaged my sister the other day and I said, you know, I can't believe that one day he's going to be a baby that talks. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So I think I just look forward to, yeah, just normal mundane things, going to the park together and um, first, like, you know, first day of kinder and all of those things. And um, I look forward to hopefully being able to bring a sibling into our world and, um, yeah, things like that. And are you able to have a year off or? Yeah, at the moment. Well, yeah, hopefully. Um, all of the plans that I've got in place at the moment will mean that I'll be able to have a year off. I might take a bit of long service leave just to sort of buffer it out. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, aiming for a year. Brilliant. Yeah. And your family's quite close by, are they? Yeah, my mum and dad are. 10 minutes down the road and my sister's 15 minutes down the road so if that so yeah they're really really close by um yeah they I don't see them once a week it's because I've seen them twice a week that kind of thing yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. my mum and my dad are both very much looking to looking forward to being future babysitters I think (laughs) has it changed your relationship with them at all We've always been really, really close. Um, And so I'm surprised at how much it has changed our relationship. Um, We're we're that much closer again now. Um, I think there's something like, so he's the first grandchild in the family. And so um, I think there's something really, really special about being able to 
do that for my parents as much as I've done it for me. I've sort of done it for my parents. My mum particularly was really, really ready to be a grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, so watching them and how much they love him and how much they care about him, I think, because, yeah, it's definitely like, it, yeah, strengthened our relationship even more. Yeah. Um, my sister was there when he was born. Um and yeah, so uh, she loves him to pieces, and yeah, it just it hasn't changed how how close we are. It changes what we what we do together and what we speak about, and and you know, like I was saying, like it changes your own perspective on life, and it's I think it sort of feels like it's change theirs a little bit as well and so we've got that sh- that shared experience yeah. which I think is really nice and if anyone's sort of just considering whether this journey is the right one for them what advice would you give them besides getting over the arbitrary age thing <laughs> um I would say feel all of the emotions that come with it um even when I was pregnant I was still questioning whether I had done the right thing, Um, you know, like not, not whether I'd done the right thing, but I was questioning. Yeah. I I can't, I don't even know how to put it into words. I was questioning whether the timing was right. And I was questioning whether I was capable enough to do it. Um, And I was wondering how much my life was going to change and whether I would miss the parts of my life from before Theo was there. And so I think lean into all of those things. Don't make it don't let yourself think that that means that you're not ready or that you're not worthy or that you shouldn't do it. Cause I think that even people who do it in more traditional ways still have those thoughts and those worries and yeah. Um, just feel all of those emotions, embrace them um, and then embrace the the wave of love and amazingness that comes when the baby's actually there. <laughs> mm. You're just in total love bubble with this gorgeous little man that I can still see getting rocked there. So thank you so much for sharing your story and I can't wait for others to hear it. Thanks so much much for having me and, yeah, it's been amazing. Thanks so much for letting me share my story. I'm Alicia and this is the No Need for Prince Charming podcast, bringing you stories of Australian solo mums who created their own happy ending. If you like what you heard, please follow or subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and leave a like, a review or share with your friends to help others find it easier. Bye for now.